Israelites into the wilderness to escape from what they came from. And they ended up setting up camp. And in the middle of the camp, God had them set up a tent for himself, right in the middle, close to all the people, with the, the, priest, the priests surrounding him and then the other people outside of that. God in the middle of the camp. But the only problem with having God in the middle of your camp is that it's kind of like living close by to a nuclear power plant. There's the potential for all sorts of power and all sorts of good to happen, and there's also the potential for disaster to happen. The priests were equipped to live close to this nuclear power plant of the holy place of God, and they had special rules and special things they were supposed to do in order to be able to take care of this nuclear power plant, to serve it, to, to treat it appropriately, to help the people connect with the power of God. Again, this possibility for great good and this possibility for danger. And as we'll see later on in the book of Numbers, it does, everything does kind of explode at one point. But the problem with a holy God is that we have a hard time figuring out how to stay close. He's the fusion center. He's the source of life. He's the source of all energy. He is the place where chaos gets made into new life. And if you keep him at the center of your camp, and you keep him where he needs to be in his proper place, there's water from the rock, there's bread from the sky, there's deliverance from enemies. But if you tarnish or soil the holiness of God, you can have a problem on your hands. So we're in the book of Numbers, and in the book of Numbers that we began this last week, the Israelites are one year out of being enslaved in Egypt. They had fled from Egypt, God had delivered them, and God had brought them through a wilderness to the base of Mount Sinai. And so they are one year out of that. They have received the Ten Commandments, they have received the Book of the Law. They are preparing at the point where we are today in the book of Numbers to leave the base of Mount Sinai and to begin journeying in the wilderness toward the Promised Land. Now just by way of review, because I know there was a lot of information last week, there are three major locations in the book of Numbers. The first one is Mount Sinai. This is where God gives the Ten Commandments. This is where Moses goes up for 40 days, and the Israelites think, oh, where's Moses gone? And they hang out here at the base of Mount Sinai for about a year. Then there's a journey period. And then in the middle of the book of Numbers, we have the, the desert of Paran. The desert of Paran. This is the wilderness. This is a, a, an arid wasteland. There are people here and there, but there aren't really civilizations. There aren't big cities. There's, uh, there's just not water. And then, on this, there's only three locations. Not, there we go. Uh, and then, uh, on this place, there is the, the plains of Moab. And so they, they go from Mount Sinai to the wilderness to the plains of Moab, which is overlooking a river to this, this city called Moab, which will be the final enemy that they have to conquer before they can enter into the promised land. So the book of Numbers is a journey, it's really a map through their journey through the wilderness. And today we are looking specifically at Numbers 5 and 6. Last week we talked about how God had a very intentional order of how the Israelites were to set up camp, how there was a reason for the order. 
He didn't just say, okay, everybody camp where you want. He said, we're going to bring order out of chaos. We're going to establish community out of discommunity. We are going to establish a people out of not a people. And so we had this really uh, in-depth description in the first couple chapters of Numbers that has the tabernacle, that's the presence of God located in the middle, surrounded by uh, Moses and the priests at the entrance of the temple, and the three groups of the priestly families are cl most closely located around the tabernacle. And then you see the 12 tribes of Israel, three on the north, three on the south, three on the east, three on the west. And they were instructed to camp in that order, and then they had when they got up to go and leave, and they would, they would march out, they'd file out in a particular order that God gave. And these chapters in Numbers, which kind of seem like boring chapters if you read through them, are, are just instructions about how they're supposed to set up camp and how they're supposed to organize themselves, because this is how they keep the presence of God with them. This is how God shifts them out of slavery in Egypt into creating their own little Eden, this oasis, this place of life in the midst of the wilderness. God in the middle of the camp with everyone camped around. This is his holy, awesome presence. And so with digging into the book of Numbers, we're, we're moving through this over the next few weeks, and I need to give credit to the Bible Project as the source of a lot of the material that I'm drawing from for this series. But in this book of Numbers, it, it seems to be a little kind of uninteresting book that's just kind of weird. And it alternates between giving a story of the Israelites had this thing happen. Like last week we talked about Moses going up on Mount Sinai and what the Israelites did. And we have this kind of interesting story. And then there are a couple chapters of really random laws that just seem completely disconnected. They're not, but they seem disconnected. And you think, why are we talking about this random law? And then it goes to another story about what's happening in the wilderness. And then talks about more laws. And then talks about another battle. And then talks about more laws. And so it's a very interestingly broken up sort of book. And we are going to dig into some Bible scholarship today and over these next few weeks and seek to understand how this book is put together and why that matters. There is a collection of the first five books of the Old Testament called the Torah. The Jews call it the Torah or the Pentateuch. What pent means five. And uh, you can call it either one. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And you can see on this uh, lovely little fancy image here, that Genesis is the first book, Deuteronomy is, is the fifth book, and Genesis and Deuteronomy are kind of like the slices of bread on a sandwich. They, they're holding together the content in the middle. There is a lot in Genesis that echoes in Deuteronomy. Leviticus is the middle, it is the heart of the Pentateuch, and it is primarily the book of the law that God gave to Moses at Mount Sinai. So if you want some really wacky reading, you just read through Leviticus, and it is, it is the book of the law it's, that's, that's really focused on law. And then you have Exodus and Numbers. Exodus and Numbers are parallel books. This was something that was established on purpose by the writers of the Torah, and they would have expected that you would have been Bible readers, that the people who knew that these stories would know the Torah really well. And so Exodus and Numbers have lots and lots of parallels. Exodus is the wilderness journey out of bondage. Numbers is the wilderness journey to the promised land. In, in Exodus, we have the 12 sons. In, in, um, 
in Numbers, we have the 12 tribes. In both of the books, we have Israel complaining and God providing. In both of the books, they're hungry, and then God provides food. In both of the books, they're thirsty, and then God provides water. Both of the books have Moses exhausted and not wanting to lead the people anymore and wanting to give up on them and kick them to the curb. We also have Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, who appears in both books as, his, as a wise counselor. Both of these books end with a death. The Genesis ends with the book, uh, excuse me, yeah, Exodus ends with the book of Jacob. Numbers ends with the, book of Mo- with the death of Moses. Jacob has a poem that he leaves the people with. Moses sings a song. There are lots and lots of parallels. Now, some of you who are high school students or literary students, you will know how to look for literary symbolism. You'll understand different types of literature, and you just you use these skills that you gained in school. And as we read through these books, as we know these books well, we'll start to see these parallels. We shouldn't read numbers without also reading the rest of the Pentateuch because it all fits together. So you're, you're meant to pick up on these parallels and these authors have a high opinion of your ability to do so. So there's this overarching story. In Exodus, we've had people who, who were delivered, then they go to wilderness, then they go to Sinai. And in Numbers, where we are today, they leave Sinai, they enter into a different wilderness, and they will be delivered to the promised land. God's design for humanity all along has been to have people in his presence. When he created Adam and Eve, he said, we are to be together. He created them to be in communion with him. That's what was disrupted when the fall came. God wants people to be in his presence. And so when he establishes the camp with the tabernacle, he says, we're going to try again. I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And he says, this is going to be my presence among you and we're going to dwell together, and I'm going to be the source of Eden, the source of new life, the source of goodness and flourishing and shalom for you. This little Eden in the midst of the wilderness. And just like Eden was a protected creation with God's presence in the middle, so the camp was a protected, consecrated community with God's presence. So now, today, they're in the wilderness in the Middle East, in, in the, at Mount Sinai, They've made this covenant agreement with God to be a holy people. He says, be holy, and I'm going to bless you. Be with me, and I'm going to bless you. Remember who I made you to be. Remember your identity, and I will bless you. But just like Adam and Eve broke the covenant with God in Eden, so Israel is going to break this covenant too. So the covenants that God establishes through biblical history are always about recreating a new Eden with God's presence in the middle and God's people living into their true identity. But we have failure after failure after failure of it happening. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Numbers chapter 5 today. Otherwise, the passages will be on the screen. We we are looking at a really rather obscure section of Scripture. You're going to, if someone asks you what you read in Scripture for church today, you're going to have to tell them something really strange because these are really interesting passages. But we are getting into these two chapters that specifically break down a couple of the laws. I mentioned a few minutes ago that how the book of Numbers goes is it tells part of the history and then it talks about laws that relate to that piece of the story. Then it talks about another piece of the story, and then it talks about laws that relate to that piece of the story. That's what we're seeing here. So we're going into the Torah, 
and we'll look at four different laws today. Numbers chapter 5, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Command the Israelites to send away from the camp anyone who has an infectious skin disease or a discharge of any kind, or who is ceremonially unclean because of a dead body. Send away male and female alike. Send them outside the camp so they will not defile their camp where I dwell among them. The Israelites did this. They sent them outside the camp. They did just as the Lord had instructed Moses. So God says, if there is some sort of disease, some sort of, some, something that's related to death in people, they have to be excluded from the camp because my presence is holy. Th there's this cultural taboo system that cleanness is of the utmost importance. It's this idea that people can't be touched by death because death cannot exist in the presence of God. Death was the enemy that came. It was the result of the fall. Death is the enemy of God. And so if you become impure, ritually impure in some way, you have to go out of the camp. Now, this wasn't always because of sin. Sometimes you just became impure because of life. So sometimes you became impure because you were caring for a dying person and they died. If you're, you're not going to be accused of sin because you buried your, your, dying, your dead relative. That's not sin. But the reality is that the holiness of God is such that even that kind of uncleanness meant some boundaries. Eden, it's this, it's this little model of Eden. It's this picture of no death can be in the camp because death is not of God. This story, each of these laws are going to connect to an earlier Old Testament story. And this one echoes the story of Adam and Eve because what happened to them when they became unclean, when they disobeyed God, when they ate the fruit that God said? What happened to them? They were banished from Eden. They had to be excluded from the presence of God. And this, the, the, the writers of the Torah are expecting that you're going to put together that this is going to mirror Adam and Eve, and you'll see some more instances of this in just a minute. So it's this idea of there has to be exclusion from God when there's unholiness. This law teaches us that, number one, life only comes from a relationship with God. We so try to live, like we can be close to the tabernacle of God and hold on to uncleanness, to hold on to parts of death. We think that we can have our cake and eat it too, and yet God says, you must be holy. Without holiness, you can't please God. Without holiness, you can't get to God. And the law teaches us that life only comes from a relationship with God. And apart from God, outside of Eden, outside of the camp, in the wilderness, that's death. That's the first law. The second law is then in the next verse, Numbers chapter 5, verse 5. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, when a man or woman wrongs another in any way, and so is unfaithful to the Lord, that person is guilty and must confess the sin he has committed. He must make full restitution for his wrong, add one-fifth to it, and give it all to the person he has wronged. And it goes on and, and gives some more. You can, you can thank me later for not reading everything today. 
Uh, but then it goes on and gives more information. So it's this idea of, of restitution, saying that when somebody wrongs somebody, you need to make it right, because community matters. God's community cares that we have good community with each other, and so that we, we have to have restitution with people. So say there are two Israelite neighbors and one wrongs the other, that person has to not only restore what was wronged or what was taken, but also add one-fifth to it, so give back a little bit more in order to make that restitution. Here, there's this Old Testament echo of Cain and Abel. Do you remember what happened with Cain and Abel? Cain killed his brother Abel. And in this story, there is an opportunity for, there, in, this, in this law, we're, we're reminded of the wrong that happens between brothers. How we need to make restitution with our brothers, with people that we wronged. And that our holiness is interconnected with other people. One of the things that I find very interesting about these four laws that we're looking at today is there's always a path forward to make things right. You don't get stuck in timeout forever. So when a brother is wronged, here the law says, this is what you need to do to make it right. But there is, the good news is there is a way to make it right. You're not forever banished to be in the wrong. There is a way to move forward. The law here teaches us, number two, that relationship with God is intertwined with relationship with his community. This is a way of saying we're not monks. We don't get to just enjoy a, a personal zen-like experience with God between God and us. God has created us to be com a community, a kingdom of priests, a group of people. God has created us to have relationship with each other, and he's intertwined in our relationships with each other. He says, you can't be holy unless you are seeking holiness in your relationship with your community. That says a lot. John Wesley has a quotation that says, there's no holiness but social holiness. And what he means by that is, you can't be holy all by yourself. If it's just you in a room with you and God, great, but watch and see what happens when you get out into the world and you're actually living life and you're with people, see how holy you are then. Relationship with God is intertwined with his community. So the laws point us toward community. These, two, these first two laws are early reminders of, uh, of how Jesus says the sum of the law and the prophets is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Get these two things right. They're both part of holiness. Then we get to the third of the four laws that we're looking at today. And I'm just going to tell you, this is the most disturbing disturbing one that might be in the whole book. And it's, it's awkward, it's, it's complicated, it seems chauvinistic, it's a very unsettling law. We're not going to have time to unpack it fully today, but hopefully I'll, we'll get into it enough that you'll get messed up about it, and then you can go study it a little bit more. So we're looking at Numbers chapter 5, verse 11, and this is a, a law that talks about faithfulness. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll give you a taste of it here. Numbers 5, verse 11, Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him by sleeping with another man, and this is hidden from her husband, and her impurity is undetected, since there is no witness against her, and she has not been caught in the act, and if feelings of jealousy come over her husband, and he suspects his wife and she is impure, or if he is jealous and suspects her even though she is not impure, then he is to take his wife to the priest." 
He must also take an offering of a tenth of an ephah of barley flour on her behalf. He must not pour oil on it or put incense on it because it's a grain offering for jealousy, a reminder offering to draw attention to guilt. The priest shall bring her and have her stand before the Lord. Then he shall take some holy water in a clay jar and put some dust from the tabernacle floor into the water. It gets weirder. Verse 18. After the priest has had the woman stand before the Lord, he shall loosen her hair and place in her hands the reminder offering, the grain offering for jealousy, while he himself holds the bitter water that brings a curse. The bitter water that brings a curse. So it goes on. It goes on for quite a while. And it gets, it gets weirder and it gets worse. And it, it, it continues to talk about how if she has indeed been unfaithful to her God and to her marriage, then this whole thing is going to cause her suffering and it says her abdomen will swell and her thigh will waste away. It's a way of saying she won't be able to have children anymore. And it says, however, if she has not been defiled herself and is free from impurity, she'll be cleared of guilt and will be able to have children. Now, we know all the way through scripture that, that um, infertility is not necessarily a sign of God's punishment on somebody sinning. That's used sometimes in the Old Testament, but I just want to say by and large to anybody who have gone through something like this, that it is not a consistent way that God works. This is here, in this passage, talking about the faithfulness of people to each other in the name of God. There are other places that talk about the, the role of men, and, and uh, this, role is, this specific law is just uh, targeting women in this case. It's a, re it's a really awkward law. And I think that what we need to pay attention to is that this story is about communicating that faithfulness matters. Faithfulness matters. Right relationships and holiness equal life. And life and faithfulness go together. This passage has some interesting connections to a couple Old Testament stories. In Genesis 6 through 8, there is another very strange story about the sons of God and the daughters of men coming together in a sexual relationship that is a result of human violence and is not pleasing to God. And there are some echoes of that in here with some of the language that's used. It also is a connection to Noah, and there were a couple phrases in there. In verse 17, it says he'll take some holy water in a clay jar, and then in verse 18, it talks about the bitter water that brings a curse. And there are some language connections with what happens with the, the flood and with Noah and, and how the floods were this bitter water that brought this curse on the earth. So, so there are some connections here that the Torah writers, once again, are assuming that you're going to make because they're seeing some of these early, early statements of how God does community from earlier in Genesis being reflected here through these laws. I know this is like deep stuff. I hope you're tracking with me. It's because it's kind of crazy. But I think the important thing to see here is that all of these laws are illustrating a bigger truth. All of these laws matter, and all of these laws are, are part of how covenant faithfulness is described. But they're also, they're also like parables for the bigger story of what God is doing. It's not to say we don't take them literally, but they are, they are also parallels to a bigger parables of, what, of a bigger story of what God is doing. And the thing that I, th I, th I think we need to focus on here with this particular one is that the law teaches us that, number three, God requires our faithfulness. Over and over through Scripture, God compares us, his people, to wayward wives. He says, I'm the husband and you're the unfaithful wife. 
Over and over, God uses that illustration to help us picture what faithfulness and unfaithfulness look like. The reality is, church, is that lots of us, all of us, have been unfaithful. We've let God down. We've been unfaithful in our relationship to God. And the law teaches us that that faithfulness is essential. All right, if you're still with me, then we've got our fourth, our fourth law in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of separation to the Lord as a Nazarite, he must abstain from wine and other fermented drink and must not drink vinegar made from wine or other fermented drink. He must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. As long as he is a Nazarite, see, see all the things you miss if you don't read the book of Numbers? Like all this wacky stuff. Verse 4, as long as he is a Nazarite, he must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or skins. During the entire period of his vow of separation, no razor may be used on his head. He must be holy until the period of his separation to the Lord is over. He must let the hair of his head grow long. Throughout the period of his separation to the Lord, he must not go near a dead body. Even if his own father or mother or brother or sister dies, he must not make himself ceremonially unclean on account of them because the symbol of his separation to God is on his head. Throughout the period of his separation, he is consecrated to the Lord. This is talking about something that we call the Nazarite vow. It is a vow that anybody can make. One of the things that I think is neat in here is it says that men or women can make this vow. This was an opportunity for a spiritual consecration that was open to women as well, even though this was a patriarchal society. And it was a way of saying, hey, we recognize that not everybody in the company of Israel are priests. Not all of you have that kind of holy role of, of consecrating yourselves to God with your whole life. And so the Nazarite vow was a way that people could say, I just want to extra devote myself to God for this season. I just want to be especially committed and especially set apart for God in this season. And it was an opportunity for anybody to to not become a priest, but to have a similar sort of connection with God. It was a special consecration and a special commitment. The word nazir, that Nazarite comes from, is the same root word that refers to the golden plaque that the, the high priests were instructed to wear that said, I belong to the Lord. So this Nazarite vow is a way of saying, I belong to the Lord. God makes a way, even for ordinary people, to have a close and priestly relationship with him. Because the law tells us that ordinary people can be holy. Ordinary people can be holy. So in the midst of all of these laws that are, sound so foreign to us because they are in, in a context of a culture that is unfamiliar to us, the law teaches us that life only comes from God, that relationship with God is connected to to our relationship with community, that our faithfulness to God is absolutely demanded by God, that he's not interested in a halfway unfaithful relationship, and also that it's possible for ordinary people to be holy. So we continuously see over and over in Scripture this creating of an Eden, the centering of the presence of God, and this call to people to find their identity in him, and the people failing at it. We see it in Eden, 
We see it with Noah. We see it here in Numbers with the, the, the covenant of the Ten Commandments that has just been given. And, oh, and we'll see it as Numbers goes on that the people will fail at it over and over and over. But that doesn't stop God. He doesn't adjust and say, oh, well, I guess this doesn't work. He doesn't stop and say, well, this is too hard for them, so I'll lower the standards. That's not how he works. He doesn't lower the standards. God instead says, I'm working out a plan. I'm working out a plan. Keep your eyes on the big plan. And we have this covenant in Eden. We have a covenant with Noah. We have a covenant here at Sinai. There are covenants that all lead to what will become a new covenant through Jesus. Embedded into all of these laws is this communication of the incredible holiness of God. And embedded into all of these laws is this amazing message of grace, of this is how you get out of time out. This is how you get out of the curse. This is how you escape from the consequences. Every one of his laws has a way of redemption. There is a way to move forward. With Adam and Eve, it wasn't the end of the story. With the people of Israel, it wasn't the end of the story. God is constantly bringing us back to Eden. He is constantly calling us into his holy presence. He is constantly still calling us to a life of holiness, not skipping on that call to us. But he keeps calling. He keeps calling. Because without holiness, no one can see the Lord. Numbers chapter 6 ends with a completely different tone. It shifts from these laws that are describing holiness and describing the way back to redemption. And it ends with this interesting section in Numbers chapter 6, verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. Because blessing is God's orientation. Blessing is what God's been wanting to do and has been doing from the very beginning. He's not just this grumpy God who says, well, I'm holy and I demand that everybody act a certain way and let's see if you can do it or not. That's not the orientation of God toward you. God has always wanted community with his people. He has always longed for your holiness because he knows that in your holiness is life and health and wholeness and fullness and flourishing. And so he says, the Lord, this is the blessing I have for you. I will keep you. I will sustain you in faithful relationship. I will protect you. He says, I'll make my face shine on you. That means he'll give you favor. That means that when you walk into a room, he looks up. It means that he will put his name on you. You will be called his own. You belong to him, and that is your identity that he wants for you. This has been 
the plan and the call of God from the very beginning. It has been interrupted by the sin of death. It has, death entered in and death took over. And God has been on this redemption plan with us ever since. We talked last week about how these 12 pictures along the wall of our sanctuary take us from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And it's the picture of God's movement through history to bring us into the final Eden that we'll one day have in heaven with him. The Lord bless you and keep you. He says, this is my will toward you. And so the time is coming. The Israelites only have hints of this, but the time will come when a new covenant will be made. A new and more complete covenant. A new and final covenant through Jesus. The prophet Jeremiah foretold this. In Jeremiah 31, it says, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. I love that line. When I took them by the hand, come on! Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declared the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. When Jesus came and lived in his earthly life and did his ministry here, he made the statement that said, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He said, I didn't, I didn't come to just throw all those old laws out. I came to get to the heart. I came to fulfill what they are leading toward, which was your holiness and your centeredness, and your identity in me. The book of Numbers reminds us that we have a new beginning ahead of us, a new beginning that involves some wandering in the wilderness, but a new beginning that also involves the presence of God and the available holiness of God to transform us and to make us new. And it's a book that reminds us of, of who we are. In this t period of wilderness wanderings, God is forming a national identity so that they understand who they are as the people of God. God knew that if they went to another place with other, other countries around them, they were going to become like them. And God says, I'm going to make you my people. And he says, this is your identity. This is your identity. You get to be in community with the holy God. This is your identity. You are blessed by me. Live into your blessing. This is your identity. Just like I called Abraham to be a blessing, to pour out blessing. You've been blessed to pour out blessing. Just as you have special status, you, you have special status as partners with God. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are part of what the Bible describes as the royal priesthood. You have access to Jesus. The Bible says that if we are followers of Jesus, we are rescued people. We are no longer in slavery. We've been freed from bondage. We are not enslaved anymore. Here's the thing. God's, God wants to be in the middle of your camp. God is in your camp, and he requires your holiness. I think we've cheapened that a lot these days and said, we just are going to keep on in our uncleanness and in our unholiness. And God says, no, let's deal with that. There's a way to deal with it. I want you to come to me, but let's deal with it. 
this is the nuclear reactor here. Let's handle it properly. And church, God is in your camp. He's with you. It's what he wants. He wants to be in your camp wherever you go. When you leave out here of these doors, he's going with you. He's among you. He's not leaving you. And God is in your camp. He's cheering for you. He is in your camp. He is cheering for you. He has blessing for you. He does not want you to experience death. He does not want death or deathliness in your life. He's making a way for you to get out of time out. He is redeeming you. He is freeing you. He has new things for you. He wants this abundant life for you. This is who you are if you're a follower of Jesus. And in the midst of this kind of messy number stuff and this complicated life, in the midst of the wilderness that perhaps some of us are walking through right now, you need to know you have a call to holiness. And you need to know that there's a path to holiness. It's all grace. It is all grace. But fortunately, God's got lots available. And you are on this path toward identity and being the people of God that he says you are. When Jesus celebrated the Passover, which was the celebration of the Israelites being freed from slavery, he sat down with his followers and he said, all right, here's the new and final covenant. This last covenant, he says, it is a new covenant, the covenant of my blood. Just like the prophet Jeremiah said, he would write his words on our hearts and in our minds. And Jesus says, this covenant is my broken body, me being the sacrifice to make a way for your holiness and your purity. And this cup is the new covenant of my blood, the way he washes us clean by the blood of Jesus. The scripture also tells us that because this is a covenantal work, we should examine our hearts before we participate in this covenant and that we should confess any sin we can think of before God. And so I invite you to take a few moments and bow your heads, examine your heart, invite the Holy Spirit to examine your heart with you and offer up any sin to God, no matter how small, no matter how seemingly unimportant. Offer this up to God and confess and repent of whatever it may be.